0: Hello and welcome to Things Musicians Don't Talk About with your hosts Hattie Butterworth and me Rebecca Toll. Within our vibrant musical world it can often feel that the struggles and humanity of musicians is lost and restricted.
1: Having both suffered in silence with mental, physical and emotional issues, we are now looking for a way to voice musicians' stories, discuss them further and to connect with the many others who suffer like we have.
0: No topic will be out of bounds as we are committed to raising awareness for all varieties of struggle. So join me, Hattie and guests as we attempt to
1: bring an end to stigma by uncovering the things musicians don't talk about. So we are here in my house again with (laughs) Hattie, obviously, well not not obviously, me obviously and the wonderful Emily Ashton who is a musician and climate activist. Welcome Emily. Hello, thanks for having me. How are you doing today?
2: I'm alright thank you, yeah. I'm looking forward to this conversation.
1: Well yeah, so are we. So you got in touch with us via email, kind of Mm. letting us know about your amazing work but we'll get onto that later but for now could you just give us like a bit of a backstory of who you are and how you came to music first and foremost?
2: Well I am I picked up musical instruments when I was very small. I started the piano when I was five and it was always a really big thing in my childhood um, but I didn't really find the sort of direction I was going to go in profession until I was in my mid-twenties when I got really heavily into early music um so i went via the cello and the baroque cello into vials um and now i play uh, mostly vials and mostly
0: with fretwork which is a vial consort yeah wow i'm i'm i was such a fangirl when i realized (laughs) the fretwork kind of connection there um another cellist on the pod just gonna say I'm sorry about that <laughs> No, it wasn't your <laughs> we have a lot of cellists for some reason oh
1: well at least
0: recently <laughs> have,
1: yeah attracted a lot of, of cellists but, but who was it that was telling us that cellists are just generally like good successful people so maybe that's why they all get in touch with us well, J-
0: james ainsco <laughs> was it him? oh yeah no it was <laughs> from the um help musicians the are like mm. ceo mm. he was going on like cellists are the best ceos or something like could they have the i don't i can't remember what his point was but probably because both ceo and cellist begin with ce <laughs> yes
1: it's, probably it's just the same word yeah yeah i think so. it's
2: because um it's very relaxing playing the cello with the vibrations of the lower notes because now actually i play high instruments i play the treble file mm. quite a bit
0: very different experience yeah so do you get to choose which vials you're fave? Or do they just sort of swap you all round? Uh, we do
2: a bit of swapping round. Much more swapping round, obviously, than uh, violin family
0: players would do. Yeah. Right, So okay. it's nice
2: in that respect, yeah, to have different perspective of different parts of the group, you
0: know, the top line, the middle line, the bottom. But can you be kind of better at one vial than the other?
2: I suppose you can sort of favour one. I mean, I like playing trouble because it's very small. You can carry it around easily. Mm, <laughs>
0: right, yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, there's no issue with the... Extra seat on the... Exactly, yeah. Welcome to my life. It's great. (laughs) It's so cool.
1: Um, And what in particular drew you to early music? Because I love early Mm. music, so I I already know what Mm. I would say, but I'd be interested to know what you would say.
2: Yeah, I have to think back. I think, I I mean, it's partly the repertoire, so it's Bach and, you know, Ramo and, and all those sort of, you know, great wonderful works um it's partly the aesthetic it's just something about the aesthetic that I really enjoyed and I never really got into the sort of aesthetic of like real real (laughs) cello playing um myself I could never really connect with that and um and I also just I yeah I really like the sort of role of being the continuo player as well I think this it's quite um you know you are the sort of groundwork of the of the group and um not as showy as the people playing the top lines and things but it's quite sort of yeah I just sort of yeah I enjoyed that Mm. that's sort of playing the bass line I guess mm. yeah.
0: so you went to Cambridge to study music
2: yeah I did yeah. was
0: that because of your early music kind of interest and thinking maybe I want to learn more about it first or were you just sort of academically more inclined rather than more mild... I can't speak today <laughs> I know what you mean
1: <laughs> or was
0: it kind of at, at that point you were more interested in music academically rather than wanting to be a performer
2: I had no idea really that I was interested in early music at that point. Okay. I was I was playing the piano mostly when I was at school and I I was never going to be a pianist. But I sort of loved music and I suppose I went um, and did an academic degree for that reason. I didn't really know what to do. I just knew I loved music and I knew that I, I wasn't going really going to go and be a, a professional pianist. So, um, So I did that and then I did various things. I lived abroad for a bit and I did some worked for the university in Cambridge just in an admin job for a while and that sort of thing and wasted away some of my early 20s <laughs> and then,
0: Love it. And, but We've during that there. time
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah during that time I did get my hands on a vial for the first time that was really important because I you know I don't know how I discovered that the vial even existed really um I don't remember but I just remember being really drawn to it and really wanting to play it and um I was very lucky that the in Cambridge they have Um, early music instruments for hire and that that just meant that I could get going and I found a really brilliant teacher as well and that spurred me on so
1: didn't
2: didn't know that
0: so before that had you played the cello alongside the piano
2: yeah yeah okay yeah but again I was not you know I was not gonna I just never had the sense I was gonna be a cellist essentially just sort of in the normal (laughs) so you only (laughs) started playing the viol at Cambridge Uh, I started I think I picked up when I was about 23, 23 oh my gosh so like late I really enjoyed that about the early wow. music scene. Actually, when really? I was studying, yeah, when I was um, on my master's course at the academy, there were people there in their forties, um, people who, you know, lots of people who come up through, through modern violin and then picked up the baroque violin. That's sort of thing, but also people who come to it later or tangentially mm. somehow. Um, I really like that about about it. it yeah, was... age
0: is less of a sort of defining factor. Yeah, definitely, of... I think so. And just
2: lots of different kinds of people and um, from yeah, different places and yeah, it's good. I've
0: always seen it as like. Slightly enviable enviable club of lovely people <laughs> that you yeah. don't seem to get much contact with as a modern player. Well, there's another divide. Uh, so <laughs> exactly, <laughs> just another one. Just another one. Yeah, it's
2: a shame, isn't it, we all get divided up. I it? know.
1: Yeah. Um, what we're really interested in talking to you about today is your work with climate activism and just your mm. general views on being a musician and Mm. the climate and everything could you tell us a bit more about well your work with that and how it kind of came about
2: yeah I think I've got a similar story to kind of lots of people which is that I was kind of environmentally aware you know in a sort of vague way for a long time I was doing a lot of recycling and uh, you know actually we stopped flying you know to go on holiday many years ago even though I was flying for work still and that sort of thing um we were doing things like that and doing a lot of signing petitions and sort of worrying about things vaguely (laughs) (laughs) um but it was it was 2018 that was kind of a watershed moment I think when the IPCC report came out um can't remember what number um and Extinction Rebellion arrived on the scene and I think a lot of people got to the point where they just felt like a lot of the things they were doing were really just not touching the sides you know they would the marches and the petitions and all that sort of stuff it was it just wasn't really in in proportion with the scale of the of the problem that was emerging well not really emerging i mean it had been emerging since the 70s when shell suppressed it but um it was sort of becoming into the public eye a lot more and i think it's easy to forget at this point in 2022 how little there was in the news and in the public discourse about climate change in 2017 2018 mm. until until that happened mm. now it's everywhere all the time and that has that is a really big change and i think it's easy to forget that um yeah, so like lots of people, I saw Extinction Rebellion blocking the bridges on that first day, and um, I went to a local meeting in the Village Hall in Cambridge, and there were just, you know, ten of us, and it was cold, and nobody knew what was going on. <laughs> no heating allowed. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, just like They their coats on. <laughs> um, I went with a musician colleague of mine, actually, mm. as well, yeah. And at that point, I had a three-year-old as well, so that was a complicating factor, so... It was sort of... I was very uncertain about how it was all going to kind of pan out with them. But I want, I really wanted to do something. I just, like lots of people, I just didn't really know what it was. And I I suppose I got more and more involved. And the community in Cambridge grew very fast. And there was lots of people who felt the same. And I ended up doing a lot of things in Cambridge. And going to London um, for the rebellions that you've seen on the telly. That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And doing those sorts of things, yeah.
1: I think... Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right that a lot of the stuff that we do just doesn't feel like it scratches the surface. Mm. Um, and you also founded Extinction Rebellion, Baroque, um, which you mentioned play at protests and other such gatherings. Is that correct? Yeah. So there were a group of us um, around the time of
2: the of the first big rebellion in London in April 2019. Um, I was in touch with some other people in early music um, who were feeling the same kind of way and we got together to um, sort of have a little mini orchestra, I suppose, um, or chamber group that could go out and just play at the at the protest. So we played on Waterloo Bridge, um, surrounded by people sat in the road um, and surrounded by police and all that sort of stuff. That was quite an amazing experience, actually. And we played at Marble Arch as well. Um, and then after that, it a few more people heard about it, and we became, and now we're a little bit more like a collective than a group, really. Mm. And and so, you know, if anybody listening wants to get involved, they can get in touch. Um, but we just have a sort of, yeah, a, a little bit like a sort of WhatsApp group or mailing list where if, if somebody wants music, we're sort of rent a, rent a Baroque protest music group. <laughs> and we have been involved not just with Extinction Rebellion as well, but with BP or not BP as well, quite heavily as well, because they're obviously doing a lot to do with the arts um, mm. and fossil fuel sponsorship of the arts, which I think is one of the most important things that we can push against
0: mm. um, as musicians, yeah. So you were involved in the stuff at the British Museum, was that with you, or...? No, I wasn't there actually, no, okay. um,
2: I did a, something that where we were protesting against the BP sponsorship of the Royal Opera House mm. open air
0: man yeah. let's talk about that yeah. <laughs> yeah i don't like that is one of the the things that i think i just can't believe even now mm. that still exists i'm sure mm. you feel the same mm. um and i mean correct me if i'm wrong but i think bp are still technically sponsoring this big screens event isn't it
2: i'm not sure i'm, I'm not sure anymore probably um but they I mean haven't done it various various sponsorship deals yeah, I mean there's also the big one is the science museum. There's a really really big yeah. and growing uh, pushback against that. Um I mean there's sort of double irony there because it's the science museum. <laughs> <You know? laughs> <know>. And uh, <laughs> there's that's been youth led as well that protest which is really nice and I think the school strikes for climate and, and all those, those sort of youth groups have had a big um part to play in that mm. in that campaign and it hasn't been successful yet but I think you know the tide is turning and I think it's inevitable in the end that um these they just can't go on you just have to keep the pressure you know have to keep the pressure on mm. these institutions make sure that you know that y- you know people are watching and people are outraged about it you know you have to make sure
1: that that's known I think yeah was the um idea behind extinction rebellion or exile baroque mm. as like a morale boosting thing or was it to express something through the music or was it something else I think um, personally, I've struggled with reconciling the
2: two parts of my life. You know, the music and the and the environmentalism. I I I don't really know. I know that there's loads of people who are doing really interesting stuff on concert platforms to do with environmentalism. I mean, Sarah Nichols does an amazing twelve years thing, and there are loads of orchestral things going on, and lots of people doing interesting stuff. I've never, I've never got involved in that side of things. I'm not really sure why. I just. I don't, I just don't know how to connect with audiences myself. Myself, I mean, I really respect people who can, but that's mm-hmm. not something I've felt able to do, is to bring it, like, bring the environmentalism directly into the concert hall. So we're looking, I think, for another way to bring the skills that I had and that, you know, that my colleagues had into the direct action movement, because one of the things about XR when it started was the idea that you could bring any skills or any talents or any interests that you had you know maybe it's baking maybe it's making costumes maybe it's playing musical instruments maybe you're a lawyer and you can get involved in the sort of legal side of it um yeah so it was about bringing our skills I guess and what we had to offer like like into into the direct action that mm-hmm. the exile were doing mm-hmm. I think that was the idea behind it
0: it's interesting you say that like you didn't feel able to get involved with the sort of activism on the concert platform Mm. because I guess I imagine the concerts that fretwork do or you know baroque concerts and the audiences that maybe are there and maybe the fear of how they might react or or how potential sponsors might react if there was this big sort of political scene in a concert that they might deem to be Mm. something relaxing or something to take their mind off the world or whatever Mm. do you have a sort of opinion on like baroque music having a kind of, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I
1: think, yeah, like, (laughs) concerts and
0: and art in general, I I
1: guess more concerts, having a political agenda or, like, Mm. a political statement within it.
2: Yeah. I'm not sure why we're quite so scared of that in classical music because there are people doing it in pop music. I mean, Mm. Billie Eilish had new music on a dead planet behind her, didn't she, you know, when she sang? And, yeah, I, I don't really know why we're so scared of it. I guess because our audience is different, um... Less money. And there's less money and it's more precarious. And I think, you know, particularly as freelancers, we're you know, it's it's very precarious business out there. Um, I think that's partly and, and it's also knowing how to do it in a in a way that will connect with people. Yeah. Because you do you have to be you have to reach people where they are. I don't think that's a very easy thing to do necessarily in a concert platform, especially if you spring it on them. <laughs> so there's a question of yeah, there's just a question about how to do it sensitively, and as I say, there are people doing that, and I think it's all power to them; it's brilliant. But mm. um, that's just not what I've sort of been able to to offer, partly because I mean, partly because I'm I'm very angry. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I'm working through it. <laughs> yeah, but I I I feel like I need to channel that the sort of rage, I guess. Um, and I don't think, yeah, I think the things that I've been doing are cathartic in that in that sense and i think that other people are hmm. yeah able to do the other stuff and I, I think that's important to do to just recognize what you can't do as well and i think you know if yeah. we talk about flying i think that's <laughs> that's something that always inevitably comes up um some people are in a position to take a stand about that and some people realistically probably aren't if hmm. they want to stay being musicians. so you know we we all have to find what it is that we can offer i think um yeah in our own situation our own temperament and whatever
0: I really like that you sort of say that those two things maybe can't come together because of the anger you feel, or yeah. because you want to make a bigger stand than maybe would be acceptable on a concert platform, or yeah. I don't know, an angrier stand, an angrier stand, or just yeah, maybe to talk rather than to play. Or um, I mean, are you happy to talk about your experience of you know protesting to the point of being arrested? or is yeah. that something you'd rather not?
2: <laughs> yeah, no I can't do. <laughs> um it's all been through the courts now so it's fine. Perfect. Um <laughs> Yeah, I well in during lockdown, obviously it was um funny time for musicians. Um and I got I got very involved in um what was called a divestment campaign at the University of Cambridge. So obviously I feel a connection to university because I, you know, I had my education there and I'm very grateful for it because I never expected, you know, when I was growing up that I would that would happen to me and It was an amazing experience, and I wouldn't be a musician now if I hadn't, you know, had that experience. But also, the university are doing some very, very shady stuff with their... Well, they were doing some very shady stuff with their money, and that was the target of our divestment campaign. We wanted them to take their money out of fossil fuels, so they've got a huge endowment. I mean, huge in relative
0: terms in the UK. Can I just ask who... Was this which which this was was Extinction Rebellion Cambridge? So
2: so Extinction Rebellion's got lots of every town or city will have its own local group, and and the Cambridge one's very active. Um, We have a sort of big target in the university, (laughs) Mm. Um, so we did this. Yeah, we did this divestment campaign, and the idea was that it was. There had been a long campaign from students and staff inside the university about divestment and taking money out of fossil fuels. And it had some momentum, but it just wasn't really quite getting anywhere. And the idea of bringing direct action into the equation um, from Extinction Rebellion's point of view was just to widen that conversation out into the local public. Because, you know, the stunts, whatever you want to call them, (laughs) protests that XR often do, or or you'll see people at the moment throwing soup and things like that, hanging from bridges... Um, People often criticise that as, oh, it's just trying to get attention. But actually, sometimes attention is just what you need at that time. You need eyes on the issue. You need people from outside the normal conversation. So that, that, the divestment conversation was happening within the university. But what we did um, in our campaign, I think, widened the conversation right out into the local population. A lot more people were talking about it and knew about it. And I think that put a lot of pressure on the university. And that was a sort of escalating campaign that started with letter writing, petitions, open letters, um, we did things where we did a teddy best picnic, and we did we did all sorts of stuff, we did, you know, lots of, there was lots of creative stuff, we had divestment dinosaurs that would process through <laughs> the town, all this sort of thing, but it, you know, it, we, we had to keep, we had to keep the momentum going, and eventually um, we got to the point where we did a march around Cambridge, and various people sprayed paint on their hands onto the, onto different buildings of, of the colleges. That had not that had still have money in fossil fuel, and it was supposed to be oily hands, so it was black paint. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, d- I did that. I sprayed black paint on my hand on Senate House, which is the sort of symbolic heart of the university, as opposed to one of the colleges. And I was arrested. And um, it, it was something that I built up to a long to for for quite quite a while, um, because there are a lot of implications. There can be a lot of implications if you if you do that, and it is scary if you. Not, obviously, I'm really very privileged and lucky not to have much um, negative interaction with the police in the past, but it's still, it's still frightening to, to do that, um, to be on the wrong side of the law, you know, and I was really worried about the implication for my career as well, and actually I did have a lot of trouble afterwards um, with the school I worked for. Who tried to push me out because of the reputational damage I was doing to the school, um, but luckily the parents all rallied round and because of lots and lots of kind words from the parents of the people that I was teaching, actually I didn't end up.
0: Was it a uh, private school you were teaching? Yeah, it, yeah, it was a private oh. school. I think that was the problem. Yeah. Gosh, my mm. gosh.
2: But I have to say that when yeah when I when I was arrested and I was in the back of the police van, I re- I felt extremely peaceful in a way that I don't think I ever really much had in my life before and there was something about having done something that's really really right it was right at the edge of what I was kind of c- capable of making myself do mm-hmm. <laughs> at that time. And it, I just knew I just sort of felt like it was the right direction. It, it was the right cause, it was the right direction for me to be pushing things in as part of that group. and yeah, it was just it just created a real sense of like I suppose of what I believe about the world and my actions be- aligning.
0: Do you know how many people along with you were arrested on that?
1: I think there were six others, yeah. Okay. And do you have to declare that? Like, is that on your DBS or something? Well, I was acquitted. Uh, I was very lucky. The other people who were arrested that day
2: um, were not acquitted. And that just goes to show how arbitrary the the Mm. criminal justice system can be. Wow. So I had a different magistrate just by chance. Um, Wow. And so I don't actually have a criminal record
0: so how long did that go between being arrested and, and finding out whether or not you were going to be implicated sort of with a oh
2: plan? a long time um it yeah i think it took 18 months to come really? to really like that. that's so was stressful was it that long or was it six, but i can't remember exactly it was all during lockdown and obviously those years were oh, all...
0: <laughs> yeah very blurry
2: yeah how was so... it
0: mentally in that time though were you very much like this could be the end of my career or were you very much sort of more I don't care about that. I guess this careers is the careers right were already... Like,
1: mm. there weren't any careers at that point. True. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I didn't think it would be
2: the end of my career because I've seen other people do it. I mean, I, you know, I it, for me, it was a big thing. Like, for me, it was the biggest thing I was prepared to do at that moment. But I knew lots of other people who'd done it many times before. And I'd seen lots of people who were teachers and nurses and that sort of thing um, being arrested. And it's not necessarily... I mean, it can have really serious implications for people's jobs. Um, but it's... Uh, the discretion of the people who employ you. And so it can really go in different directions. Um, And I just felt like I think there's something about once you dip your toe in the water, once you, once you're on that sort of road, it's very, very difficult to reverse. (laughs) It's very difficult to say, Oh, well, actually I do not really care about it that much. (laughs) So I'm not going to do that. And, and so there is the sort of, I suppose the temptation, just, just keep going and do the next thing and the next thing, because you know, there's a lot of conviction behind it. And so, um it, it's it's hard to do but it's also hard not to do it. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm sort of stuck a bit like lots of people in between those two
1: weighing those two things up, you know. And since the new policing bill this year has protesting with extinction rebellion changed. Uh yeah, I think
2: it's still a little bit too early to kind of see how that's mm-hmm. going to pan out really. But I think it's made people more nervous. I mean, it and it should cuz yeah, I mean, it, it's becoming, things are becoming increasingly authoritarian. I think the, the public order bill that's being debated now, and by the time this goes out probably would have gone through, is is even more frightening. And they're talking about being able to electronically tag anybody who's been at a protest or, you know, at their discretion, arrest and charge people who have just been at a protest. It's, it's really frightening. I think a lot of people don't know what's going on um, because it doesn't probably affect them because, you know, but... It's It's such a di- dangerous direction that things are going in. I, I think it will eventually... Yeah, people eventually will realise that it has really far-reaching implications, not just for people who want to go and sit in the road, but just for everybody who wants to live in you know, a society where we're free to uh, resist, basically, resist the direction things are going in. And um, I think that's... Yeah, that's the core of it. It's, it's just about being, being part of the resistance to the way things are going. And
1: um, mm.
2: if you can't do that without
1: being sent to jail then it's obviously you know funny. Yeah. I mean I was looking at it more in detail last night and I was yeah obviously there's these regulations around noise levels and things mm. and I was thinking how bizarre it is as a musician when making noise is your job and then you mm. want to take that to a protest mm. and that's being clamped down on mm. as a form, of, a form of regulation it's just so bizarre it's bizarre, but it also speaks to how effective it is. Yeah.
2: I think you know if you if you've ever experienced the samba band at a protest, it's it's extremely mm. powerful. Mm. It's really it's so powerful. It really changes the dynamic of the situation. I mean, we were finding our exile bright music when it was doing so in in the opposite direction. So it can really calm people down, mm. and it can it can create a sort of much more sort of warm and friendly kind of feeling. But the samba band has also has its own uses to sort of motivate people, get people going, and. It, yeah, and so of course they're clamping down on it because it's it's um it works. So yeah, that's that's the other th- that's the other side of it is that all this clamp down and protest is because the protest is having an effect and it's it's growing I think in momentum and obviously the government don't want that. It's not it's yeah it doesn't protect their vested interests. So mm. yeah.
0: why? I mean I know we've talked a lot about sort of the action you've taken, but I'm also really interested in I guess why and you know in terms of how you process the facts and statistics about Mm. climate change why do you feel you can't just go on living as a musician being Mm. quiet and just doing your nice fretwork gigs and then (laughs) having a nice time on the weekend why is this such an important part of of you and your witness to like what's going on in the world
2: yeah it's an interesting question isn't it um I don't know exactly, but I think it's something to do about just having noticed and acknowledged what's going on um, and kind of inter- internalize it in some way. And I think part of that is being part of a community of people who are doing that at the same time. I don't think it's something that you can really do really on your, ho- on your own. It's too overwhelming, but I've been lucky to have... Yeah, I mean, that's been a very important part of Extinction Rebellion in Cambridge for me, is being part of a community of people who are, who are doing that together. And I think that that's often when I talk to people who who don't who feel completely like they just they they can't face up to it. They know something is bad, with it it is that lack of a sort of collective yeah forum or like a or a feeling of being in a in a group or of like with like-minded people mm. that, that is sometimes holding people back. And I think the work that reconnects has been really important for me as well, which I would recommend to people. It's it's in a book called Active Hope by Joanna Macy, and she talks about. Um, well, there's a spiral, but the beginning of the spiral is noti- just noticing what's happening and noticing what you feel about it. And t- and she talks about how if you if you notice if you feel grief about what's happening, or even on a tiny level, you know if you you see animals by the side of the road, or you you know you see the trees leaving their leaves at the wrong time, and or on a bigger level, you know when you see on the news what's happening in the global south, you know, the, you know floods in Pakistan or you know huge human disasters as well. If you, if you notice and you feel Something, anger, sadness, you know, rage, whatever, fear. Then that it's important that you acknowledge that because you have noticed you you like you have noticed and that is the first step for people I think so. Mm. People are afraid of that. They're afraid of oh, what if I really just think about this? What will happen? It's like well, first of all, you will have noticed and acknowledged what's going on, and that is that's the first step for us as a society as well and as people. And then the question is, what do you do then? And then I think you know once you then you need some sort of way to process that and that can be through action and I think that's what a lot of activists are doing is yeah is in those cycles of like feeling rage (laughs) fear anxiety and then and then just sort of trying to channel that into something that you can do that you feel is going to make a difference Um, even if it doesn't it can never really feel adequate but doing something that is, is your contribution and, and then and then just going through that cycle again, basically.
1: Mm. I'm drawing yeah. a lot of parallels in my mind between yeah, the overwhelm of feeling alone in your anger and whatever to do with the climate and the same within our community of musicians mm. that struggle being a freelancer and faced with the reality of being a musician but alone at the same time. And I'm yeah. wondering whether musicians just make... Well, I feel like musicians care a lot of the time. It's a generalization. Care about big social causes and are used to facing things alone but then finding community to kind mm. of get through it. Um yeah, wasn't really a question but I'm just mm. thinking maybe it's why maybe you're predispositioned to taking a stance.
2: Yeah, maybe. And also I'm as a musician I'm in really specific circumstances which are very very lucky um because um i you know i work with fretwork and and they are um, amazingly they they when i said i wasn't going to fly anymore um they all said oh well maybe none of us will fly <laughs> mm. and we won't wow. fly in europe so so we don't fly in europe anymore um i think the others will, will go to america now and again but again it'll be a very sort of minimal it'll mm. it, absolutely keeping the flying to a total minimum um that is massive. Really. Yeah, it's huge, actually. And it has proven to be a huge commitment. You can read on the Fretwork blog about our trip to Spain, which was a total <laughs> train disaster. Oh Everything no. that went wrong, could, could have gone wrong, went wrong. It was just so <laughs> terrible. It was so expensive. But um, but there were also many, many advantages yeah. to, to that way of travelling. And I think the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment had done a project as well. And some people who did that talked about the benefits of slow travel and and the connection with the communities and how grateful people were that actually Mm. they'd gone to these places that they probably wouldn't have gone to if they'd flown to the nearest city. And um, I think for us there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of benefits, but it's also hard because you're, you're moving in not in the direction that society is trying to take you. Um, You know, flying is cheaper. It's easier. It's quicker. It allows us to have the kind of musical economy that we have at the moment. It's really, really difficult to take a stand against that as an individual. And I think anyway that really the change needs to be systemic and that's why I mostly do sort of direct action stuff and not, I don't focus on, you know, have I recycled every last piece of plastic in my house, although I'm sure that's also very important. (laughs) Mm. You know, yeah, I'm trying to focus on the systemic change Mm -hmm. myself because I I think it's more effective,
1: yeah. Have you approached other uh, ensembles or... Or had the conversation with other organisers about not flying places? Or is it just... It was just a coincidence that it was the organisation that you are working with were like, yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah. Um,
2: yeah, I have. Had, I, yeah, because I don't fly now. If I'm asked to go on tour, yeah. I always... I sort of... As part of that, I I always write back and say, well, I, I don't fly for these reasons. Can I come by train? Or, oh, this won't work for me or whatever. So I suppose I... Yeah, I always say that's the reason. Um, I know... yeah I I have had to make peace with the fact that that's not good for my career (laughs) um but it's much much more relaxing for me actually to have made that decision because I was agonizing about everything that I did endlessly and it was really affecting me actually it was I was finding it very very stressful and caused me a lot of anxiety um so, although in some ways it's more difficult, in other ways I feel much more mm-hmm. at peace now that I just don't—I don't have to think about it. I just say no, I don't fly. Sorry. <laughs> was,
0: that, was that anxiety about the guilt of flying and? Yeah, I see. Right. Yeah, and being trapped and and sort of yeah being trapped in that sort of
2: system where you can't—you don't feel like you can really. You, you have, have no choice. choice. Yeah, you really if choice, you're a musician
0: yeah. and you want yeah. your career to, you know, take off in some yeah. way, then you just have to accept that you're going to fly everywhere.
2: But there are a community of people that are that are doing it. I think Solomon's Not don't fly anymore either. Um they're mm-hmm. a Brock group. They they go by training in Europe. Um Why is it the Brock
0: people? Ah, what lovely. Front, you see. But the modern <laughs> people, gosh. The
1: game. I was gonna ask has it been mostly like a an all right response or have you had a lot of backlash or No, I've not had any backlash. Um
2: no, I don't think so. Um...
0: Probably just silence. Yes, <laughs> mostly
2: silence, mostly silence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Similar to us yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I mean,
0: I was kind of in my head drawing parallels between your response, your responding to people asking you, do you want to do this job? As maybe how I might feel filling out um, a form about declaring a disability yeah. and whether that's going to impact work. I mean, not saying that not flying means that you're disabled but it's that agonizing over to whether to disclose
1: something or to whether to take the stance or to compromise yourself and your identity yeah. or it's it's such a sh- I mean it's so murky yeah that you know being a
2: self-employed musician is 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 a very murky thing and who knows <laughs> what's going on a lot of the time yeah. you know yeah. i don't I don't know i i I suppose the way I've dealt with it is is firstly by being really lucky to be part of a of a chamber group because it gives you that sense of belonging and and security and and like you know it's like a family really yeah so i have you know I have that, but also just having other things that I do so that i'm not you know i I'm do examining and I do administration work and mm. teaching and things like that so that i'm not so it's also not a really critical financial decision for me as well, i suppose yeah
0: yeah do you think that was another reason why? you wanted to take it, I guess, as far as you do or did because of your, I say, like, potential privilege in having work as an examiner, having kind of respect in being a member of an ensemble, you know, support you. Mm, did you yeah. feel like in some ways that that was representing other musicians who maybe don't have that privilege yet? Or
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, there's loads and loads of people that are just not in the position to mm. do what I did at all. and And that's it's totally understandable and no, I don't think anyone is suggesting that everybody needs to take that kind of mm. action um but you do you have to I think you have to just honestly perhaps challenge yourself about what is the next thing that you can do that takes you slightly out of your comfort zone I don't wake up one day and decide to get, <laughs> get arrested um so it was just a process of just like what's the next thing that I can do what's the next thing yeah. I can do and sometimes also you know things go in phases in your life and sometimes you don't have time to think about it you know and and it's just a case of getting from one day to the next and Mm. um you know people's health and mental health are in flux as well and I think it's it's really hard because I think yeah activism is another thing where people push themselves way too hard and just like being a musician and it's not it's not healthy but it's difficult to find other ways of doing it Mm. it's difficult to find sort of sustainable ways of doing it that yeah especially as when it becomes from such a sort of deep place of conviction as well because when you stop, you feel, and an urgency as well. I mean, there's obviously like the clock is ticking in one sense, but also we can't live like that because it's not possible to sustain it. So mm. it is all these different things that you're caught between. It's yeah.
0: I'm really curious to talk about the again going back the backlash you had from the school you teach at. Mm. I don't know if you are happy to talk about that or if it's rather.
2: Yeah, yeah, I suppose I could do briefly. Um, yeah, I mean, it was interesting to me that um, the problem was the reputational damage aspect of it. And I think that, yeah, yeah I think that people are very afraid of, yes, they're afraid of not only of sticking their own head above the parapet, but someone they're associated with might have stuck their head above mm. the parapet.
0: But in terms of kind of law or mm. or technically what you did and how it ended up, is them saying that you're damaging their reputation, is that discrimination against you as a teacher? Goodness, who knows? I don't know. Oof. Oh, I because that's what was in my head. I was like, is that I technically discrimination? I mean, you... maybe
2: it's to do with your beliefs. Yeah, and I think yeah. other people have. So I wasn't employed. So it, so employment law kind of didn't really apply. Mm. I was self-employed, but I, I know other people who have had long disputes with their place of work about this very thing, and and it often comes down to people's yeah the, the sort of personal politics of the people they're dealing with or the sort of worldviews of the of the people who are higher up in the in, yeah in the higher. And up,
0: how did they? say to you oh yeah, we don't like what you're doing.
2: We don't want to be associated with yeah, you. Yeah, we don't want to be associated. Mm, I think uh yeah, I just I just got a message saying <gasps> an
0: email. Yeah. Just being like
2: Yeah, I think so, yeah. Wow. Did it basically say you're dismissed? Uh, it wasn't quite <laughs> it wasn't quite that bad <laughs> you said, are dismissed. We said we're not going to of offer what? you any more pupils. And <gasps> you need to write to all the pupils of the of the people that you presently teach um and ask them what they what they think. So which I did. And they yeah. all said they either said I don't think it makes any difference. You're their piano teacher. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> it's
2: really got nothing to do. Or they said, oh, marvellous. You know, isn't that great? You know, we all need to make a stand against, you know, the climate Aww. crisis. And so they were all really, they were all very supportive. And I think that that took, um, yeah, the, the the higher powers by, <laughs> by mm-hmm, surprise, mm-hmm. I think. And yeah, in the end, these things are, it is a little bit about public opinion. And I think that things are changing. If you If you look at the people, if you look at the reactions to some of the more, outrageous environmental activism that goes on a lot of people are saying oh well I wouldn't do that myself I don't agree with that method but of course they you know they're right in principle if you look at insulate Britain Mm. who now thinks that we shouldn't have insulated every house in Britain before this winter I mean it was
0: Mm.
2: yeah I mean that's not to say everybody thinks it's right to go and glue yourself to the M25 I mean I you know I stand in solidarity with them really because the difficulty of deciding to do that and carrying out is not to be underestimated (laughs) and you know the consequences will then will be really severe
0: um, and there has to be people have to respect that there is a a really deep sense of needing to be there. And these to do people, that.
1: these people that are protesting, really care. They're not like yeah. n- uncaring people. No, That's they're the they're thing. most
2: caring and and sort of thoughtful people. And it it's also is. I think the narrative is as though people just suddenly, yeah, just suddenly get up and decide to do that. It's I'm like gonna gonna be a pain today. agonizing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's there's just so much agonising that goes on about is it is it actually okay to do this or this action? You know, yeah. is it okay to to spray chalk paint on a, on an ancient building? Like, yeah. is that all right? You know, is it okay to disrupt musical performances? You know, that's another yeah. one. I'm I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know. A lot of the time, I I don't know. <laughs> mm. None of us really know. But I think there's just there is a sense that you have to do something. And often, if if people are criticising it, and you ask them if they have better ideas, they they often don't really have better ideas All their ideas to go on a march or write a petition or stand on the pavement and which you've done we've all done (laughs) that i mean people have been doing that for generations before you know in terms of climate for for decades before so
1: yeah i wonder whether thinking about this school and like climate change affects us all Mm. and i wonder whether if just thinking about protesting and being arrested if it was something that seemingly didn't affect everybody like and am about, like, abortion rights, which obviously, you know, mm. all these things do affect everybody, but I don't know, it would be easy to be like, oh, that doesn't affect me, so um, I don't want to be associated with this person that's been arrested mm. for this. Or, like, Black Lives Matter protests and this kind of stuff. I wonder whether people are more understanding of being on the wrong side of the law about things that supposedly affect us all. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think if that's the case, I think that's disappointing. Because, yeah, and then it speaks to a lack of understanding about how all those the, all those things are connected. And exactly, uh, you know, the the big message now in climate act- activism really, I think, should be about climate justice. And mm. it's a difficult thing to pin down, but it, it essentially it's about you know the the reasons that we're in all of these you know all of this mess that we're in is to do with colonialism and extractionism and and inequality
0: yeah
2: and until we have conversations about that until we solve some of those things and and all those other campaigns you know they're they're all closely associated with that so if there was more yeah more of an understanding about how, how all these things were interconnected i think it would be beneficial
1: for everybody yeah I'd love to talk a little bit about your moving away from performing at the moment. Mm. If you'd be able to talk about um, the reasons behind that and what you hope to do in the future.
2: Well, yeah, so I'm sort of, I'm a little bit stepping back from performing. I think I had the experience that lots of people had during lockdown where all of a sudden we weren't racing around anymore and <laughs> travelling up and down and stressed all the time. And, <laughs> and then Kate okay, went back to it and, you know, I think... Yeah, I think, well, there's lots of reasons. There's lots of stuff going on for me in my family life and in, in my sort of work life and, and what have you. But in terms of the climate stuff, I think that the sort of background, the, the background emotional stuff that that brings up day to day is is difficult. And it it does take, it, it takes, it sort of takes out of you a little bit. And I think that, I'm not sure because I'm not. It's difficult because not many people are talking about these things, so it's kind of difficult to know how to put words to it and that sort of thing. But I think it, it, it just means that I can't sustain that level of activity that I used to, that I used to do. Um, there was an there was a study recently um, that was reported in the Guardian that was a woman who'd interviewed lots and lots of young people, and half of them said that they, that the anxiety about climate change was affecting their day-to-day life uh, and their ability to sort of function in the day-to-day life and that and also that half of people incidentally um thought that the planet was doomed (laughs) so you can see how those two things go together i mean if you know if that's if that's the future if the future is is so uncertain it's the level of uncertainty that we're living with is just so enormous that none of us can really look it in the eye um you can sort of glance at it sideways now and mm, again yeah. and be freaked out and then go back to what you're doing. Mm. And I think, you know, from a mental health perspective, this is what, this is what we have to talk about because how do we how do we face up to the things that we have to face up to now? I I don't really know. And I, I haven't heard many people talk convincingly about how we do that. I mean the work that reconnects is the closest thing I think that I've found to to something that that acknowledges that. And that, that came out of actually nuclear anti nuclear protest in the seventies, I think. Oh wow. So it's not a it's not a current thing, but it really applies very heavily to what we're doing now.
0: Yeah, I think where I was going with your that. Personal but. life though. How do you kind of not let the climate anxiety completely mm. overwhelm you every day? Because I've been mm. through I, I can just so clearly remember like periods of climate mm. anxiety mm. that have like it's all I can think about. It's all like, yeah. you know, everything I do, there's some kind of guilt about it. Yeah. So how do you kind of continue living? Yeah. And how do you take care of yourself Yeah, well. but still being yeah. aware and, and knowing that that's an important thing.
2: Um, well, taking away some of the guilt was really good, actually. So so the not flying was really good. That removed one source of anxiety. <laughs> um, and doing other things like got an electric car now. So when I get in the car, I don't feel... Again, I know not everyone can do that. But just for me, it was something that like took some of the stress out of travelling Although it added other stresses about charging networks. <laughs> um, <laughs> um being mostly vegan. I'm not totally vegan, but like mostly vegan is another thing. Like, so some of those things where I mean, I do think it's it's it is it is and it isn't important for us to focus on our own carbon footprints. The carbon footprint was invented by by BP. I think it is a way of individualising us, keeping us separate, and preventing us from thinking about this as a collective problem. So I don't like the sort of to to talk too much about your carbon footprint. For me, I think it was more about, yeah, just feeling a little bit more at peace in the world. A little bit. (laughs) Um, And then I think the other thing is, yeah, just knowing other people who are going through the same thing is really, really supportive and really important. Having people to talk to who are experiencing things in the same way. Um, Yeah, and taking action. I just find that very cathartic as well. And I think that, yeah, I, I am just... I don't know. My personality is just such as well that I I can compartmentalize things, uh, you know, um, which is lucky. Um, but it gets harder and harder to do that. Actually, hmm. I think it gets harder. Yeah, as the sort of the just the the feeling in the world of like things going wrong, the feeling in the the natural world of things being out of sync. And and I had a very hard time in the heat wave. I found that yeah, oh just my god, physically and mentally, like sort of unbearable. <sighs> hmm. Actually. Thank goodness it didn't go on longer, and it just gives you a glimpse as well into the, into what other people are experiencing. You
0: know, the fifty degrees. Yeah, because we have yeah,
2: I mean, we, we talked a lot about our own individual experience, but you know, a lot of it is is this sort of this this sense of feeling connected or or feeling, you know, I suppose, yeah, in solidarity with in some ways people who are actually at the forefront of this because we're very protected from it. You know, we can you know it's, it's isn't it terribly sad for us? So the leaves are falling off the trees, but. Uh, but you know people are dying in floods and and fires and and you know so that's it's it's really hard to be at once living with business going on as usual most of the time but also knowing that that's all going on and knowing what to do about it and to not you know for a lot of people not to be talking about it it's it's very confusing I mean it's very Mm. disorientating and difficult and confusing um so I think that yeah, what I want to do is is more things that that approach that and and just just allow I suppose things that allow people to talk about their experiences, maybe particularly musicians. So I'm, I'm I did a counselling course in lockdown, I'm hoping to take that eventually a little bit further at some point. Doing things like this, I'm going to talk to some year tens on Friday <laughs> in a oh, school about brilliant. the environment. Um, just yeah, doing doing things like that, I suppose is is a, where I want to focus a little bit more. And that is interesting that. Um, it's become a little bit more about talking and a little bit less about the music now I think Mm. actually for me yeah
0: I mean I think that we've struggled with feeling that you know through our education stuff musicians often are expected to be very polite and Mm. you know nicely entertain everybody with our beautiful tunes Mm. and actually having an opinion is not something especially with women musicians that's Mm. Really, something's taken seriously. Um, And I don't know whether, maybe for me as well, whether that's why I've gone more into, you Mm. know, speaking and writing and stuff. And I don't know whether I felt the two just couldn't match properly. But, Becca, maybe you don't feel like that. No, no, no. (laughs) I was just going to ask whether
1: doing more talking and activism has left more space for you to find solace in music rather than placing so much responsibility on it to be active, do activism through the music?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I think that um, it, I've not had the experience that a lot of musicians have had where I was absolutely on a path to be a professional musician from a very early age i came to mm-hmm. it I, I didn't you know when i was 18 19 i still didn't think i was going to be a professional musician it kind of happened a bit by accident so mm-hmm. i don't think that my identity as a musician is so is so strong as, as it, or my identity isn't tied up with being a musician in such a strong way as it is for other people to start with but um yeah i think i do want to be in a world where people do play music mm-hmm. and provide that and you know that sort of solace for us and I think it you know we all value the arts I think it's really important that people do that and obviously if people are going to do it well they're going to have to dedicate their lives to it so I don't want to be in a world without musicians but it's just about what I feel I can how I feel I can live with myself I think and you know being a mother actually is also another part of that because it puts you so directly in touch with the next generation and what what we're giving, what we're handing over to them as well. And I think it's just, yeah, it just comes down to a sort of personal thing about how you want to, mm. what you want to do, what you want to offer the world, I suppose, yeah.
0: Yeah. Are we coming to the, towards the end?
1: Yes. I, I was just mm. going to say before we wrap up in a second, um, we usually at the end of the episode do our little wins of the week. So we um, say something as small or as large as you want. That we just feel has been like a bit of a Mm. win in the past week. Mm -hmm. Um, Off you go. No, please, I (laughs) really start. You always. Oh, Oh, I've got a good one though.
2: Oh, you because I gave up caffeine this week. A and wait, musician. I think we'll all know. (laughs) Wait, how? I just did it gradually. Yeah. Oh,
1: okay. This week. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, how are you feeling? I, I feel
1: surprisingly fine and we were sitting here at the beginning with our coffees like Bleh. it's
2: fine next week I'll be back on it I'm sure but um, yeah I don't know I'm not exactly sure why I did it I suppose congrats yeah to sort of calm my anxiety a bit maybe yeah. when it all got a bit much but that was that is
0: definitely a win for me this week that's huge
1: I don't yeah I don't think I'll ever have that as my win because
0: it will never happen no I'm feeling very inspired right now though because I think it might help me we should
1: make Emily into a poster for us <laughs> or like t-shirts <laughs>
0: What would Emily drink? Oh. Roibos. No. <laughs> <laughs> Hattie? Okay. Um, Rebecca, because I really have to think about the week.
1: Okay. Mine is a, quite a big win, but I went on tour last week, very mm. last minute. It was my first orchestral tour. And um, mm. it was a big deal. And I was very worried about like socialising mm-hmm. and the drinking mm-hmm. and... I have yet to properly process and reflect on on the experience, but I survived. And also I've been having lots of like anxiety dreams where I pack a suitcase mm. to go somewhere and then on the way back, I can't fit everything in to the point where I've like, I suddenly realized I've packed all of my worldly possessions and I can't fit all of my plants and crockery back into my suitcase. Um, so that was quite a big source of anxiety for me on the way out, like taking this tiny suitcase. <laughs> but it all fitted back in. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. I, yeah, to be, I'm more proud about the
0: packing, to be honest. Did you find that when you were on tour, that you were emotionally kind of in a space of, like, trying to survive, or did you feel that you had, like, emotional ups and downs? I felt quite in survival mode. Mm. I was, um,
1: a bit numb and a bit kind of yeah. out of it a lot of the time. I also got a bit ill and i also ended up having to eat a lot of dairy which i don't usually do mm. and my period started so everything was a bit other like, than that <laughs> <laughs>
0: that sounds, sounds awful. great <laughs>
1: sounds really awful and the hangovers which i'm not really used to
0: <laughs> this has gone lower and lower as we yeah your talked.
1: voice will you'll be get, going to Fair the distance
0: away. oh damn sorry, sorry katie. katie that's our editor <laughs> <laughs> um so my win I find the first wins that come to my mind are always very superficial. That's brilliant, though. That's why they're called little wins of the mm. week. Okay.
1: I'm sorry that I dropped my huge one in.
0: <laughs> well, uh, yesterday I had that... I published that <gasps> oh, yeah. article. I published. I it. It's really quite niche and boring, but I'll tell you anyway. It's
1: not niche or boring. Well, it is niche, but it's not boring. It is boring.
0: <laughs> I published an article about... Um, so I'm working for the Gramophone magazine, which is quite traditional... Uh, classical music magazine and trying to find little ways of like just not you know not being outrageous as usual but just just a bit rageous, just a bit kind of like just asking questions like why haven't we talked about this yet or why aren't these people's music being celebrated so yesterday I wrote an article about um evening canticles which performed at even song services um and a very kind of famous church music pieces and in writing the piece I wanted to basically focus on the top 10 sort of classic ones and I was talking to people like oh you know I really classic ones that were written by women and you know everyone I was talking to my dad like other church music people were like no m- women haven't written any canticles like no it's just not a thing <laughs> and so I kind of made it my mission to like have five classic ones alongside five written by by women or people of colour. So there's a really wonderful setting by um, Coleridge Taylor, Mm. which was actually written in 1899. What? Mm -hmm. And has only been recorded for the first time last year by Exeter College, Oxford. Wow. Anyway. Legend. Anyway, so I wrote this whole article. I was slightly worried about sending it to the editor because I just thought, what if he's like... This isn't what I asked for. This is, yeah, Exactly, this isn't what I, I was expecting, like, ten classics. But he sent me the sweet... I sent it to you. He sent me the sweetest email back, just being like, it gives me so much pride to put this piece, like, on our website. And um, I don't know, it was, like, the first kind of...
1: Sign of the times.
0: Sign of the times, yeah. yeah really positive yeah, yeah. kind of feedback. And, and then all the people who I'd featured were, like, retweeting it and Aww. seemed really grateful that, like... Their church music was being taken seriously because it is the church, Anglican church music is a very male-dominated space. Mm. Um, but some women have written some bangers, absolute bangers. Shout out to Dubrinka Tabakova and mm-hmm. who else? Cheryl Francis <laughs> Hode, what a legend. There's one more, Rokasana Panufnik. Panufnik. <laughs> How do you say her surname? Panufnik. 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 Yeah. Panufnik.
1: Brilliant. Uh, anyway, that was a very very long win. Yeah, Katie, edit that one out.
0: <laughs> you <laughs> can like definitely these... shorten it down. <laughs> yeah,
2: no, I like these little wins because um, that is another way of coping with whatever's going on, isn't yes. it? Is to yeah, is to just notice small things and enjoy them. And mm-hmm. it, it can, you know, when you're feeling so much guilt about all the ways in which you're part of this toxic society, it can be really overwhelming. But I think yeah, the small the small, small wings are
1: big. A lot of people say they like the small wins. Actually, do they? Nobody's ever talked to me about them. Probably yeah. because I'm always like, yeah, I ate chocolate. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> thank you so much, Emily. Thank you for, for coming me. all this way, for talking to us, for sitting in my cramped living room. It's been a pleasure talking to you about more things that we don't talk yeah, about. Yeah, things we should
2: No, thank
0: about. you for bringing it to our awareness because it's one that we haven't covered yet. Haven't felt qualified to cover, which is interesting that I feel I often feel with climate stuff I have to have the facts and figures like at my fingertips mm. we didn't mm. mention any percentages no isn't that impressive mm-hmm. 50% of climate anxiety
1: though oh yeah that is oh, a percent yes. That's and right. I would say That's 100% right. of us of <laughs> us in this room. 50% of climate anxiety 50% in
0: denial yeah, <laughs> yeah. so 100% of people
1: nice. anyway thank you so much for coming and thank um you. just because Katie keeps yes reminding us if you would like to follow us on the Internet. We are at TMDTA Podcast. Our website is www.thingsmusiciansdonttalkabout.com don't talk about.com and you can find our contact details on there. And if you wish to leave us a review or and or subscribe, that would be amazing because there's only so many times that we can review our own podcasts.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we also have um, a Patreon if you want more content. Our chatty episodes are on there. We've got a literally no it'll be out well out right now is a spooky scary halloween episode That's where true, we yeah. read back our worst <laughs> feedback from music college <laughs>
1: it was terrifying it was
0: quite scary <laughs> oh i've got some good again. Uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to hear some of rebecca's worst feedback oh, um good. it's just three pounds a month and yeah you contribute to us being able to have wonderful conversations like this one so thank yes. you for listening thank you so much